Well, just in case you were absent last Sunday, I began a series on this subject, Discerning the Will of God. And the title of that sermon was, The God Who Has Spoken. And today's message is discerning the will of God. What can we learn from the Old Testament? My responsibility as a pastor teacher is to present what I believe the scripture teaches, even if it puts me in the minority, even if it's not popular. And the majority view today is that God is continuing to give revelation. And we defined revelation last year as truth, or last week, truth which men would not otherwise have known. And the popular view is that God is continuing to give revelation to individuals and even to groups of people by way of prophetic utterances, tongues, words of knowledge, an audible voice, dreams and visions. This is known as continuationism. And I mentioned that it is so commonplace that to challenge it is almost akin to heresy. The other idea is known as cessationism. So let me just define those terms for you. Continuationism is the teaching that the Spirit continues to distribute miraculous gifts to build up the church. And he's doing so today and has since Pentecost, really, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Cessationism is the idea that miraculous gifts were designed to function as a confirmation of the gospel and its original messengers in the early church, the apostles. Because these miraculous gifts have served their purpose, the Spirit is no longer distributing them. And that comes from the Baker's Complete Dictionary of Theological Terms, those definitions. The historical evidence provided in the writings of the Apostolic Fathers between 50 and 160 A.D., clearly indicate that prophetic utterances gradually faded away by the early 2nd century. And so too with miracles. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, eyewitnesses? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So that's what was taking place early on. With the completion of what we call the canon, canon means the rule of our faith, the 66 books of Holy Scripture, there was no longer a need for God to bear witness through miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, and special messengers. So if you looked at the quote in your bulletin today, you would, you would read this. Except in rare cases, the experience of direct interventions of God's guidance in the lives of various Bible characters was not indicative of normal discipleship. And they are likely recorded precisely because of their unusual nature. Due to the compressed makeup of the Bible, 
it appears to its reader that God is speaking directly more often than he actually does or has. And, and that's true. Ron Jones, in writing an article on this, caught my attention. He said this, God spoke to Noah five times over 950 years. Once every 90 years. He spoke to Abraham eight times over 175 years. That's once every 22 years. Isaac two times. Rebecca once over 180 years. Jacob seven times. Laban once over the course of their lifetime. And we also see that God does not address personal issues. Only issues that involve his redemptive plan. In the case of Peter and Paul, it's the same. The revelation from God was infrequent. And it was always purposeful. Always concerning Peter and Paul's ministry. Not personal matters. Not personal words. Another, another list I, I, I read of mentioned those who never heard a word from God. Caleb, Esther, Mordecai, Ruth, Joab, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, most of the judges, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, none of Jacob's sons except Joseph by dream, none of the kings of Judah after Solomon, none of the exiles who returned from Babylon, none of David's mighty men. And in the New Testament, you have Mary, God spoke one time, Joseph twice, Zacharias once. The Magi, Magi if you want to call them once, the shepherds once, the woman at the tomb, Cornelius, Cornelius. Paul and Peter, not that much. So see, when you, when you get at the compressed view of the Bible, you see that these things were very infrequent, always to very special people for a very special purpose as God revealed truth concerning his redemptive plan. So the conclusion drawn is this. Man forfeited at the fall direct communication with God on a personal basis. He then only received direct revelation through intermediaries. God communicated infrequently and only as he deemed necessary to fulfill his redemptive plan. And we know that when anything becomes common, it loses its special character. And I think that's why there was such frequent speaking from God to people in the Old Testament. And by the way, the same is true with miracles. Sometimes you read the Bible, you think, well, there are miracles everywhere. Well, from Genesis to Revelation, we do have miracles. But actually, they weren't that frequent. There were, there were miraculous epics in the Bible or eras times in the Bible. The first was during the, the time of Moses and Joshua. That was a miracle working period, 1441 BC around then. Then during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Now just think of those four individuals I mentioned. I, I would say they were very special. And that was from 870 to 785 BC. And then the third great miracle working period in the Bible was during the time of Christ and the apostles from 28 to 70 AD. 
So as we continue to examine this subject of discerning the will of God, I want you to keep the main issue at the forefront of your thinking. Has God given to us in the Bible all that we need to know to discern his will for our lives and to live a Christian life that pleases him without any additional revelation or personal experiences or encounters? We looked at two very important scriptures that address this matter. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When it says complete, it means lacking nothing. 1 Peter 2.2 2 is the second one. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness all that we need through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. Now, if you have never memorized those verses, I would encourage you to do so. Now, one thing that I do not understand personally is how so many people can have a casual encounter with God. Someone reminded me recently about this incident in the Bible. It's found in Exodus 20. Verse 18, when Moses and the children of Israel are up on Mount Sinai, and the, the Israelites were camped by Mount Sinai. It said, now all the prophets witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Seeing the incredible power and the glory of God manifest in physical phenomenon before them, the last thing the Israelites wanted was to hear from God. They needed a mediator, and that man was Moses. In Leviticus 9, verse 22, it says, Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came down before them from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. I don't know that you can have a casual encounter with God. Revelation 1.17, John said, well, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Listen, I would not have to see Jesus. I'd just hear a little bit from him and I think I'd be on the ground. I really do. Now, Moses was an exception when it comes to, to speaking with God. God spoke to him, the Bible says, face to face as a friend. 85 times. 85 times. Far more than anyone else. So let's talk for a moment about the Old Testament means of revelation. First, we need to point out that all pagan forms of divination were strictly forbidden. To practice divination is to attempt to uncover hidden knowledge by supernatural means. So here's the definition. Any attempt to discern events that are distant in time or space, they're far removed from us, 
and that consequently cannot be perceived by normal means. We have no way of attaining that knowledge. Just why this was why I gave the definition of revelation. We would not know what the things that you know what God is completely like and what He's revealed unless He revealed them to us. Now the key passage forbidding this is Deuteronomy 18, beginning in the ninth verse, where God says, "When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of these nations. There shall not be a." found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to, uh, to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. So there were a number of ways that people would go about doing this. Seeking to divine the, the will of the gods. One was called hydromancy. Hydro means water. A it has to do with water, hydrology. And this was a type of divination in, in which by the aid of certain incantations, the images of the gods or messages from the gods were seen in the water. Do people do this today? Yeah, they do. Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 through 5 has an interesting statement. Genesis 44, verse 1, this is speaking of Joseph. He commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's sacks with foods as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And you know the story. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his, his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. The servant did everything Joseph said. And as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away in their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and weren't far away, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you to overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks the silver cup? And which he indeed practices divination? They're very interesting scripture, right? Now, the verses do not indicate that Joseph actually used the cult divination at all. I think they merely record what Joseph told his steward to say to his brothers. That was the common use of the cup in Egypt at that time. To say to his brothers upon overtaking them on, the, on his journey home. His goal was to reunite with his brothers. And J.F. The Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says he might have unveiled himself of that popular notion to carry out the successful execution of his plan for the last decisive testing of his brethren. So I don't want to get any anything get into anything more about that. It's just kind of interesting. But they also use, and this is this is uh, really strange to us, hepatoscopy. They would examine the liver, the liver which they believed was the largest organ of the, of the body of an animal for divine guidance. Hepatologists are medical doctors who diagnose, treat, and manage problems associated with the liver, gallbladder, bile ducts, pancreas, and so forth. They look for disease, not divine guidance, right? Actually, beginning in the late 1700s in this country, there were phrenologists who studied the shape of a person's head 
the bumps on their head and other protuberances to, to determine the personality and character of the individual. Now we use temperament testing. We use the Enneagram. Not much has changed, really. Ezekiel 21.18 says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land. Make a sign, put it at the head of the road to the city. So Nebuchadnezzar is coming into the city. He's trying to determine which way to go. Appoint a road for the sword to go Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon, notice this, I'm reading from Ezekiel 21, verse 21. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road where you put those signs, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. Divining the will of the gods is what pagan kings did. And it says this, he shakes arrows, he consults the images, and he looks at the liver. Now, you probably didn't pay attention to that when you read that story. So Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't want a second opinion. He wanted a third opinion. So the shaking of the arrows, that's a very interesting you know, idea. What they would do is they would write on, on several arrows the names of cities that they intended to assault, and then they would put them together in the quiver, and then they would draw them out like you would cast lots. And the city whose name was written on the arrow first drawn was the city that they would make war upon. And that's how they decided that the gods wanted them to go to capture the city. The second was consulting images. And the images that they consulted were the teraphim. Those were the small idols uh, or household gods of deceased ancestors. In Genesis 31, 19, it says, Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols, the teraphim, the household gods that they used to talk with the dead that were her father's. So he, he shook the arrows, he consulted the image, and then he, he looked at the liver, hepatoscopy, which I mentioned. So Nebuchadnezzar's superstition was overruled by God. That's what's really fascinating. In order to carry out his purposes on Judah. The king thought he was deciding by the help of the gods. But in reality, God was determining the course of his action. So the use of arrows in finding God's will has a name for it. Not a biblical name, but it's a name attached to it. And it's called Rehabdomancy. Then there was necromancy, consulting the dead. And you would find that in a number of scriptures in the Old Testament, always forbidden. And then you have astrology, Isaiah chapter 47. An astrologer is one who, who gazes at the heavens. He's not an astronomer. He's an astrologer. And actually, the earliest records of astrology come from Mesopotamia in 1645 BC. And the earliest horoscope that we know of was in 410 BC. So the people today who practice these things, nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Isaiah 47, 12 says, stand now, for, stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth, speaking to people who've turned to pagan things. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. 
You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you. You want to go that way for guidance and help? Go. See if it will help. It won't. The Tower of Babel was a center for astrological worship. Other pagan cult arts were also practiced. We call them the forbidden arts. Witchcraft, magic, sorcery, casting of lots. Today we have palmistry, crystal balls, fortune telling, Ouija boards, spiritism, Satanism. Now, why did the ancients and the modern pagans do these things? Why did they turn to that? They wanted a communication with a higher power. Some wanted power. Some wanted hidden information. Some wanted both. And you know what this tells us? There is a spirit world. There is good and there is evil. God is good, but there are many evil powers working to usurp the authority and the glory that's due to God alone. And this is why in Ephesians 6.11, we're told, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the strategies or the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realm. So all of those forbidden things are clearly mentioned in the Bible. But God did reveal his will in the Old Testament. First, there were seers. First Samuel 9, 9 says, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. They tried to ascertain the will of God, knowledge from God. Then you had the canonical prophets who were the primary channel of God's revelation to us. Four major prophets and 12 minor prophets. There were many other individuals identified as a prophet in the Old Testament who did not write a book. Moses was a prophet who wrote the first five books of the Bible. And God, as I said before, spoke to him 85 times. If you want confirmation that the Bible is the supernatural revelation of God, Look no further than the record of the Hebrew prophets. They spoke for the Lord. Isaiah 49, 2. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. So God would use them to speak his word like an arrow that would Hit the target. Ezekiel 3.17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. Abraham Heschel in his book on the prophets said this, The prophet is a man who feels fiercely. God has thrust a burden upon his soul. God is raging 
in the prophet's words. And sometimes God asks these prophets like Ezekiel to do some very strange things. And if people did them today, we'd lock them up. Prophetic symbolism. They were divinely appointed preachers. They predicted future events. They were the watchmen over the affairs of God's people, calling them to repentance. And Jesus said the greatest prophet of all was John the Baptist, who did no miracle. There is a severe warning about false prophets in Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. And then it adds this, you shall not be afraid of them. Why? Because they don't know the truth. They have no special connection with God. They're false prophets. Don't be afraid of them. You remember Harold Camping years ago? The world was going to end. How many people literally quit their jobs, sold their house, and went on the road to, to tell America that the end was coming? They were, they were afraid, but God said, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. But the church should be aware of them. And the church should warn about them. I could spend a long time listing individuals who have given false prophecies in my lifetime. I've tracked many of them. Just about everyone who appears on TBN. Pat Robertson. Jonathan Kahn. Kane, however you pronounce it. Best-selling books. Two Blood Moons. We had somebody here at one time reading that book, devouring that book, and thinking that these were going to be blood moons, praying to signs, supernatural signs that dramatic things are happening. And I said, you know what? Deposit that book somewhere. Because it's useless. It's worthless. You got the Bethel Church and all the elite people up there in Reading. You got John Hagee. Almost everyone associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. I mentioned Harold Camping, Jim Baker, Paul Kane, Cindy Jacobs, C. Peter Wagner, who coined the term the third wave of the Holy Spirit back in the 1980s, John Wimber, the Kansas City Prophets, the Apostolic Council of Prophetic Elders. Wouldn't you like to have that group? Rick Joyner, Todd Bentley, Mike Bickle from the International House of Prayer, Steve Furtick, Joyce Meyer. And I can't omit Beth Moore, who believes she gets special revelation from God and prophecy. And she's a Southern Baptist. But she says this, not authoritative prophecy. That must be prophecy light. We have non-authoritative prophecy. She's a Southern Baptist. Back in 2016, she said this, God was going to unite all sectors of Christendom. It's a big ecumenical movement that's going to change the way Christians do things. She says the old ways of doing things aren't working anymore. 
He called this a downpour. He says, we need, listen to this, we need to accept it, whatever it is. And we must be prepared in advance for scoffers and critics like me. Just accept it, whatever it is. And don't listen to those people who are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not biblical. This is false teaching. This is false prophecy. But she has huge audiences. And, and pastors' wives go to their conferences. No discernment. No discernment. Listen, when the canon closed on the Old Testament, after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, there followed 400 silent years when no prophet spoke God's revelation in any form. 400 years. God had a purpose for that. So there were the canonical prophets. There were seers. Third, the Urim and Thummim. Exodus 28, 30. The King James refers to the Urim in the commentary I read on the King James, lights and the Thummim as perfections. Lights and perfections. And King James refers to them in seven passages. The first place he's mentioned is in the book of Exodus in relation to the unique clothing special clothing worn by the high priest of Israel. And it says in Exodus 20 and 30, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Adam's or Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron will bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now the scripture is silent on what they look like, silent on how they were exactly used. It's, it's, been suggested, however, since the word Urim means lights in Hebrew, that these lights may have been stones that were able to reflect light or to allow light to shine through them and give the, give the high priest some type of an answer. Now, here's a little picture here. Look at this. You don't recognize him? That's Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was an occultist. He says, I obtained them the golden plates from which, which he got the Book of Mormon and the Urim and Thummim with them. He said he got the Urim and Thummim from the angel Gabriel. If you could believe that, I don't. By the means of which I translated the plates, and thus came the Book of Mormon. It came by way of pagan divination. He never had no Urim and Thummim. He would, he would wear spectacles, special glasses, and, and look into a derby type of a hat. And see things that didn't come from God. If he saw anything at all. He was an occultist. Then in the Old Testament. You have the casting of lots. Lots were small sticks. With markings of stones on them. With, or symbols that were used to make decisions. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. God chose to use that for a time. Pagan nations even use that. Pagan people use that. John Jonah, the book of Jonah, you know the story. He's, he's, he's on board ship. He's running away from God. And the storm comes at sea, and they're, they're all afraid they're going to die. And it says in Jonah 1.7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know for, 
for for whose cause this trouble has come upon us? Who, who's on board the ship that shouldn't be upon us? And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now God directed this. God overrules even pagans. The Roman soldiers cast lots for the, the seamless tunic of Jesus that says in John 19, it was one piece, so it probably, probably were, it was worth a considerable price. So they cast lots. Who's going to get that? The last occurrence of the use of lots in the Bible is in Acts 126 with the choosing of Matthias as an apostle to replace Judas. They, they cast lots. And then God revealed himself through dreams and visions. Numbers 12.6. Now, hear, hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my Moses, my, my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my, all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. So what is this saying? <laughs> Dreams are hard to interpret. Joseph was able to do that because God gave him the knowledge of those things. Don't ask me to interpret your dreams. My dreams are crazy. <laughs> So I'm not interested in yours. But a lot of people believe they really get knowledge from God through dreams. God revealed himself by supernatural signs. Maybe the most best one known to us was Gideon, Gideon's fleece, putting the fleece out. And we're going to go into these specific things in their context to see if this is normal. If this is what we should be doing. But in Genesis 24, 13, behold, here I, and this is Eliezer, Abraham's servant, stands by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give you your camels to drink. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant. Isaac. So this is Jacob, actually. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. This is, you know, asking for a sign, right? Bruce Walkie says, large camels can drink 30 gallons of water in three minutes. This was no ordinary request. He had 10 camels, 10 camels. And when he finished praying this prayer, Rebecca arrived and, and she fulfilled that prayer sought sign. So this is why I say, look, if you're going to ask for a sign from God, ask for a big one. You know, I mean, something you cannot absolutely miss. I was thinking about this other day. I went for a walk and, you know, I don't know. I was just thinking about lately. I was thinking about Colorado, what it'd be like to live there and so forth. And, uh, you know. Going down the street, and wouldn't you know it, I saw a car with a Colorado license plate on it. Boy, and then I did that song, John Denver, Rocky Mountain High, came to my mind, and there, man, is it Colorado? Went down a little further. There was a car parked there with a license plate from Oregon. And I was really confused then. Colorado, Oregon, whatever it is. We'll, we'll tell you why. That's not a very reliable way to make decisions. So it says, when he had finished giving him a drink, 
she, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to draw the ran back to the well to draw water, and then drew water for all his camels. Now, to give the servant a drink was one thing, right? To satisfy the thirst of the camels was an entirely different manner. And the servant did not plan to ask the woman water for his camels, only for himself. So I think there's something here. You know, any woman who was willing to go the extra mile in this matter was one of unusual character. She would make a good wife. So here you have it, Dad, a foolproof way of finding a wife for your son. I just want to close with this. I believe in a miracle-working God who has communicated his will for our lives in the Scripture. To what extent does he do miracles? To what extent does he go revealing himself to us? Should we be expecting miracles every day? There were very rare events in the Bible. Once a month? A miracle a month? A miracle a year? One in a lifetime? Should we be expecting God to reveal to him, himself to us by signs? Which we really have a hard time figuring out. By words, by circumstances, which are difficult to interpret many times. By dreams and visions, which are impossible to interpret. Should be waiting to hear a still, small voice inner peace. That is what is happening today. And it is pervasive in Christianity. It's all over the place. On the internet, in sermons, in books, in conferences. People, people go for this. But Jesus never said that we are to live our lives by subjective mystical experiences or seeking supernatural signs. He said man must live his life by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is contained in the scriptures that we all have equal access to. Nobody is being shortchanged. Nobody has to feel left out. And God's word revealed to us in the Old and New Testament is sufficient to order our lives and to bring glory to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Thank God for his word. Now, when I say that the scriptures are sufficient, we'll talk more about that down the road. It does not mean that there isn't truth found outside the Bible. 
There is truth found outside the Bible. But everything you need for a life of faith and godliness is in the Bible. And you could rest in that, right? You could take comfort in that. Because it's here for you to read every day. Every day. You don't have to go to a special place to find out how to hear from God, to discern God's will. Everything that we need to make good, sound, biblical decisions is found in the scriptures.